And I'll invite you to open your Bibles, please, to Matthew chapter 5. If you're using the Pew Bible, you can find it on page 810. We return today to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus explains to us, He instructs us as to what the life of a kingdom citizen should look like. Verses 13 and 14 of Matthew 5, Jesus explains to us that it's God's intention for His people that they would live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And in the verses that follow, Jesus tells us how we can rightly function in such a way, how we can rightly function as His kingdom representatives in the world. Our passage today is going to be Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26 and 38 through 48. We looked at some of these intervening verses um, two weeks ago. Um, I'm going to go ahead and start reading in verse 13 of chapter 5. Let's turn our attention again to the reading of God's holy, living, and inerrant word. Jesus speaks and says, You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard it said that to those of old you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was, uh, jumping now down to verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. 
For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is God's word for you today. The grass may wither and the flower may fade, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. Please pray with me. Lord God, we thank you for your enduring word, for the enduring truth, the enduring reality that accompanies it. Lord, would you send a special measure of your Holy Spirit so that we might rightly understand your word. And also send your spirit, Lord, to empower us to live in this way in which you call us to live in this portion of your holy word. And we ask this in the name of Jesus, our Lord and our Savior. Amen. Well, to help us understand how we can rightly live out our lives of faith as salt of the earth and the light of the world, the Lord Jesus places upon us several callings. Two weeks ago when we looked at verses 27 through 37, we learned that the Lord calls us to purity and to faithfulness and to truthfulness. In our passage today, we're going to see that that Jesus places upon those who would follow after him the callings of humility and meekness and love and peace and reconciliation. The Christian is called first to humility and meekness. And we see that as we consider the words of Christ in verses 38 through 42. Look at it there if you would. Where he says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And so you know a tunic is an inner garment, like a shirt, and a cloak is an outer garment, like a, like a coat. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, what's Jesus saying when he says this? Well, well, first, so you know, this, this phrase, an, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, is actually a part of the penal code, code which the Lord, through Moses, gave to the people of Israel. So, so if Jesus is saying, no, 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 don't do that, is, is he somehow speaking against this portion of the law that, that God gave his people? Is, is he encouraging people not to follow a Lord that God had previously given the people? Well, no, we have to understand that that's not the case. But, but what Jesus is doing, as, as he's been doing throughout this whole portion of Matthew chapter 5, is that he's correcting a misunderstanding about God's law. You see, that this concept of, of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth was given by the Lord to his people for a couple of reasons. 
First, it it directed the nation's legal system. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth communicated the Lord's approval that, yes, indeed, a wrong should be avenged. And that was intended to to restrain evil. But but this principle could could only rightly allow for, for vengeance to occur to a certain degree. This concept taught that a punishment for a crime had to be proportional to the crime itself. This principle also restrained people who who maybe have been done wrong from from avenging that transgression that someone did against them to, to avenging that in a manner that was over the top. We get a hint for that and and the need for that in Genesis chapter 4. There we read about a man named Lamech who was wronged by another. But in, in taking vengeance into his own hands, Lamech went too far, killing the man, we read there in Genesis chapter 4, killing the man who had only wounded him. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth may sound harsh to us, but when properly followed, it was God's intention that this principle would restrain evil and that it would even stop the cycle of violence. Someone would wrong one, vindication would occur, and then that would be the end of it. Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But you see what happened is that because of the sinfulness of mankind, the people of Israel actually began to use this principle, to use this principle which was designed to put an end to violence, and they began to use that very principle as a justification for violence. They began to use it as a a justification for retribution against another. You've hurt me. You've offended me. So guess what? Now you're going to pay. That's human nature. But to this sinful tendency of mankind, what does Jesus say? He says, no, don't resist the one who is evil. And this is shocking to us. It's shocking to us, especially it seems in our day. Because there's something in us that wants to fight back. There's something within us that wants to demand that our rights would not be infringed upon. Even as people of faith, we we can resist this notion that we're to, to somehow give in to another person. Especially if we feel that other person is evil. We, we feel, oh, no, no, this person is wrong. This person is sinning. Therefore, that gives me justification to resist them. But what does Jesus tell us here in this portion of God's word? He says, do not resist the evil one. And instead, Jesus tells us here to turn the other cheek and to not resist that one who would do you evil. Now, now here's an important point for us not to miss. Jesus here is not telling us, is not telling how a nation ought to structure its laws. But, But instead, he's telling us as Christians. 
He's telling us as, as those who would follow after him how he wants us to live as his kingdom representatives. Again, that's what this whole chapter is about. And really this is an echo, isn't it, of, of what Jesus said earlier in this chapter in, in verse 5 in, in the Beatitude where we read, Blessed are the meek. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed for the meek. We don't necessarily think much of that, do we? We we don't want to give up what we see as being our rights. We don't want to risk being played as a fool. We we don't want to risk being taken advantage of. And so we do resist that person who stands against us. But here, Jesus says, if, if someone strikes you on the cheek, offer to him the other. If someone would take one garment from you, offer him a second. If a, if a Roman soldier forces you to carry his equipment one mile, which is probably what Jesus is alluding to here, a requirement of that day, Jesus says, walk with him, carry his equipment two miles. Christ calls the Christian to rid themselves of a spirit of vindictiveness and retribution and to in its place put on the spirit of humility and meekness. Christ also calls upon us to put on a spirit of love rather than hate. And we see that in verses 43 through 48. In the verses that we just looked at, Jesus called us to a radical humility and a radical meekness. And now in verses 43 to 48, Jesus is going to call us to a radical love. For he issues to us a call, not simply to return the love of those who love us, and sometimes that's hard enough for us, isn't it? But instead, he calls upon us to love even our enemies. He says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same. And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same. You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Jesus calls those who would follow after him to a radical love. And again, it's been the case throughout this whole portion of chapter 5. Jesus again corrects a shallow and mistaken understanding of God's law. God's law tells us that we're to love. We're to love him. And we're to love our neighbor. Christ even tells us that we're to love our neighbor as ourselves. This this command to love one's neighbor is first given in the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 19. You'll remember that Jesus even said that, that loving one's neighbor was the second great commandment. Second only to the commandment to love God. 
In Romans 13, 8 through 10, Paul says that, that loving one's neighbor is the sum and the fulfillment of the law. James says much the same in James 2, 8. But, but the problem comes up in the second half of what Jesus says in verse 43. He begins by, by affirming the law of God. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor. And then he makes reference to this other portion, this thing that the people have heard, but is not present in God's law, and you should hate your enemy. Again, love of your neighbor is part of God's law. But the second half of that verse, hating your enemies, is not. That is a fabrication. That's an imagination of man. That's a corruption of God's intention for his people. God's law says, love your neighbor. But what did sinful man do? Sinful man took that statement, love your neighbor, as meaning love only your neighbor. You're free to hate anyone else. That's what the heart of man is capable of doing, of twisting God's law like that. And it's been the case in some of these other matters that we've looked at, because of the sinfulness of man, man has taken what God's law says, and he's attempted to turn that into justification for hard-heartedness towards others. But to the sinful tendency of man, Jesus again says no. That's not what God desires for us. That, that's not honoring to him. That's not honoring to his law. But in fact, that's a dishonor to him. And that's contrary to his intention for us. Jesus tells us here that there is no place for hate in the heart of the Christian. And rather than to hate, he issues in its place this radical call to love. To love even those who we might want to consider to be our enemy. But rather than to hate them, Jesus says that we're to pray for them. That we're to go to the Father on their behalf, asking for their blessing. And we get a hint of, of how important this is for us in, in verse 45 when Jesus tells us that the reason that we're to love our enemies is so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Now we understand that Jesus isn't saying that you'll be made to become sons of God if you live this way. That would be contrary to the gospel. But we understand that what Jesus is saying here is that we demonstrate that we are God's children when we love as our Father in heaven loves. When we love that way, we bear the family resemblance. When we love as the Father loves, we bear his resemblance. When we love as Christ, our elder brother, loves, we bear his resemblance. Jesus calls us to a radical humility and a radical meekness. And, and here in these verses, he calls us also to a radical love, even a radical love for our enemy. 
Jesus also calls us to peace and to reconciliation. And we see that in verses 21 through 26. And the time that we, that we have left, we'll focus just upon two verses, upon verse 23 and 24, where Jesus says, If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. We're called to love and not to hatred. We're called to peace and not to anger. We're called to reconciliation and not to animosity. And here I'll commend to you again that passage from Colossians chapter 3, that passage that we looked at a couple of weeks ago, and, and also Ephesians 4, 31 through 5, 2. We're being reminded that we've been brought into union with Christ. We're instructed to put off sinful attitudes and sinful actions and to instead put on the cloak of Christ, if you will. To put on Christ, to put on the righteousness of Christ. Paul telling us there in the end of Ephesians 4 and beginning of Ephesians 5, he says, Be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. And, and then listen to these verses from Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, where Paul then says, be imitators of God. That's our calling, friends, our high calling as followers of Jesus Christ. We are to be imitators of God. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. If you've been brought into union with Christ through faith in him, you've been given the spirit of Christ. You've been given the spirit of Christ to guide you and to change you. And to enable you to now walk in ways that honor the Lord. In this chapter, we learn from Jesus how he intends for us to live as his kingdom representatives. We learn how he intends for us to live as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. And, and the way that we're to do that is nothing short of living in the way in which Jesus lived. That's quite the tall order, isn't it? And to give us an idea of just how tall of an order that is, we think of Jesus' words to us in verse 48, where he says, You therefore must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. What are we to make of a statement like that? How can we ever hope to be as perfect as God is perfect. Well, in one very true sense in this life, we can't, we won't. 
No man or woman outside of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself will ever be as perfect as God is perfect. Here I'm reminded of the words of Jesus in Mark 10.18 and Luke 18.19 when a man posed a question to Him and He began by addressing Jesus by saying, Good teacher. And do you remember how Jesus responded? Why do you call me good? There is no one good except God alone. Likewise, it's it's right for us to say no one is perfect except for God alone. But you see, this statement of Jesus, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect, that isn't just a command, but that's actually also a promise. It's a promise. In the Greek, it's a future indicative. It's a statement of a future reality. It's it's right for us to consider it as, as a command. It's something that we're to apply ourselves to, but it's also a promise of God. God pledges himself to its accomplishment in our lives. This is why Paul in in 2 Corinthians 3.18 can say that we're being transformed into the very image of the Lord, passing from, from one degree of glory to another. As one of my seminary professors was fond of saying, God doesn't just provide mercy for failure, but he also provides hope for success in the Christian life. And we can, be, we can hope to be enabled by Christ to live in these ways in which he calls us to live as the Holy Spirit continues his sanctifying work in our lives of recreating us into the very image of Christ. And we're made to be able to live in these ways as, as we continue to abide in him. As, as we abide in Jesus who is the vine. And we remember the words of Christ from John 15, that apart from him, we can do nothing. But in him, but in him, as we're connected to him, as as branches drawing from him, who, who is our life source, he enables us, he says, to produce much fruit, even the fruit of righteousness. And as we abide in him, the Holy Spirit is is faithful to produce the fruit of the Spirit in the life of the Christian. As we daily put off the old man and, and put on the new, the Holy Spirit grows us in holiness, grows us in Christ likeness, and produces the fruit of love, joy, peace, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. And so, as the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the Christian the fruit of love, we can love even our enemies. And as the Holy Spirit produces in us the fruit of patience and self-control, we can resist the one who is evil and turn the other cheek. And as the Holy Spirit produces in us the fruit of peace and kindness, we can seek to be reconciled with those who hold something against us. We're enabled to do this through the Spirit's work in our lives and and as we consider the example of our Master, 
This example that, that Christ has set for us. That's what we're told in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, where Peter tells us that it's a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures suffering. And he says in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 24, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might walk in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but instead he continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. The Holy Spirit provides our enablement. Christ provides an example for us to follow. Through the grace of God and in the power of the Holy Spirit, like Jesus, we too now can entrust ourselves to our Father who is in heaven. And because of that, we need no longer to return evil for evil. We need no longer to seek to achieve retribution for a wrong. But instead, we can now love our enemies. And we can seek to be reconciled to others. And like Jesus, in humility, we can give up what we see as being our rights for the sake of another and for the cause of Christ. And we can consider others as being more important than ourselves. And we can seek to have that same mind as Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped or held on to, but instead he made himself nothing. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to death on a cross. And friends, that's what we have pictured today in this table that's been set before us. We see the humility of Christ put on display. We see Christ's love for his enemies put on display. And we see God's heart for reconciliation put on display. Let's pray that by God's power, we might put those things on display as well as we seek to serve him as his kingdom representatives and as the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Please pray with me. Jesus, we thank you that you fulfilled the calling that you've issued in this portion of your holy word. We thank you, Jesus, that you were willing to turn the other cheek. But not only were you willing to turn the other cheek to have that be struck, but you were willing also to go to the cross. We thank you, Jesus, that you weren't just willing to walk the extra mile, but you were willing to walk the path that led to Calvary's cross. We thank you that you were willing to pray for those who persecuted you, praying to the Father as you hung on the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Spirit, for your great love for us. 
and for all that you were willing to do to reconcile us to yourself. And now, Lord, you call us to go and do likewise. Lord, to do that, we need your help. Please provide that help that we need through your spirit, Lord, through your ongoing sanctifying work in our lives. Lord, we also pray that you would provide the help that we need through this special meal that you've prepared for us today. Lord God, we ask that you would take these common elements of bread and juice and set them apart for your holy purposes. We pray this in your holy name so that we may live lives that honor you always. In Christ's name we pray.